All right, everybody, we are going to get started. I have 12.30, so we want to honor your time, as always. I know some of you have places to be, deals to uh, wheel and deal, and economies to run, soap operas to watch. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you are here for the first time, we're glad you're here. We do this every week. Roots provides the food. We do the teaching here, and uh, it's open to anybody. The more packed it is, the better it is, because the vision of uh, the owner of Roots was to provide a place where people in this area can come for lunch and be exposed to the message of the Bible. And so that's what we do. We teach through the Bible. We're in Numbers chapter 22 today. So we do about a chapter or half a chapter a week, so that tells you how long we've been doing this. Uh, about four years now, and we're in the book of Numbers, which is the fourth book of the Bible. So we're averaging about a book a year. But there's no rush. <laughs> it's, all, it's all just as good as the other parts. So it's not like we're rushing to get to anything. What we're doing, though, is we're taking, we're taking a tour through the Bible. And that's what I am in this ministry. I, I, my role is to be like a tour guide at a really cool museum and showing you things that you may not have known, but that I didn't come up with. And so it's, it's just showing and teaching and walking us together through the story of Israel in the Old Testament. Because that's something that a lot of churches just don't have the time, the energy, or the know-how to really do to the degree that they did back when the New Testament was around being written. I mean, this was Jesus' Bible. These were the stories he grew up with. He knew these like your kids know Harry Potter or whatever the previous generation, you know, Anne of Green Gables or whatever. It's, these were the stories that he grew up with and that his followers grew up with. And so they need to be the stories that we know so that when we read the New Testament, it comes alive. It, it, it's like watching, like I said before, I've made this analogy, but it's still, I think, the best analogy. You can watch the Panthers play on a black and white TV with very low resolution, you know, and you can still make out what the game is, you can get the score, you can enjoy it. It's, it's, you're still watching the game. But when you go and watch it on a 60-inch plasma HD TV and you can actually see them sweating and you can see blades of grass, and it, it just gives you a whole new enjoyment of the same game. It's the same game. You're not missing anything essential watching the black and white, but it is exponentially increased when you watch it in high definition color. Well, that's what reading and knowing the Old Testament does for when you read the New Testament. It turns the New Testament into that HD full color experience because you don't miss all of the things that the New Testament authors are alluding to. And so we looked at two weeks ago, you know, Jesus made an offhand remark about the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. Most people don't even know what that means, what that comes from. So we looked at, well, it comes from Numbers 21, and there's a significant reason why Jesus chose that image to describe what he was about to do. So if you missed that, you can jump on the podcast or catch the YouTube uh, video of it, which is what we record each week right here, and you can catch up with that because we are unfolding this story in the book of Numbers. So now we've come to chapter 22, and we are entering the, the, the Balaam saga, all right? The Balaam saga in these chapters is like this... It's, it's, like a, it's almost like when you're watching a movie and the action's going on in one place, and then it cuts to a completely different place from a completely different point of view and starts telling what seems like a, a related story, but from a different angle. 
And that's kind of what's going on in these following chapters with Balaam is we are now going to jump from, so Israel had just won a victory, two major victories in, in the Transjordan last week we saw. And they had defeated King Sihon and his army who had defeated the Moabites earlier. So they had defeated the top dog in the area. So all the other little uh, fiefdoms, little city-states that had their, own, had their own king, each had their own princes or chiefs or whatever you wanted to call them, they are seeing this happen in this area called Moab. And this is, we're on the, this side of the Jordan River. So here's the Jordan River. We're over here. Promised Land is here. Israel has come out of Egypt. They've come up to here. And they're looking over across the Jordan Valley at Jericho on the plains of Moab. That's where they arrive. That's where they camp. That's where they're going to stay until after the book of Deuteronomy. So, so the traveling part of the book of Numbers is pretty much done. So now... What we, have, what we have then is this multitude of Israelites numbering anywhere from 50,000 to 2 million and scholars are divided on that and it's not a liberal conservative thing it's just how numbers work in Hebrew it could be as low as 50,000 people which is a huge number think of Bank of America Stadium moving through your village or it could be as high as 2 million take your pick, doesn't matter the point is there's a, a vast multitude of these, these children of Israel who have been blessed and have multiplied and are, are moving through the land towards the land that God promised their ancestor Abram all the way back in Genesis 15. And they are going to be the army of His judgment. God is not a nationalistic God, but He is a covenant God. And He uses His covenant people in this instance to judge the specific peoples of Canaan. Of Canaan the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, these specific people groups. But it's not carte blanche. They're not allowed to judge the Midianites. You know, they aren't given carte blanche to go and, and destroy all the Moabites. You know, they're, not, they're specific peoples that God is sending them to drive out of the land just as generations before God had sent the waters to wash out of the land the people who had corrupted it. So that's where we arrive at chapter 22 and says, Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. So that's where we are. Now, Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, so these are the people of the Moabites talking to the Midianites down here. These are loosely connected peoples, but they still have distinct nationalities or distinct um, religious like gods that they serve. They have distinct vocations and towns, but there's some go-between. So it, you know, it, the, the North Carolinans talking to the South Carolinans, something like that, but a little different. Uh, anyway, th that's the image there. They're talking like, hey, we are in danger, us. We, you and I, you guys and our guys, we're in trouble because of these people. They're terrified. Yes? Um... Terrified <laughs> is pretty good. Yeah, just overcome with fear is the idea. Like they are overcome with fear. The irony is they don't have to be afraid because Israel was not being sent to conquer Moab. Remember a couple of chapters back, what did Israel say to Moab? Hey, we just want to pass through. We don't mess with you. We won't even drink your water. We won't even use your wells. We just want to pass through because we're going to where we're trying to get. And Moab, Moabites were the ones who prevented him from doing that. 
So, and as did the Ammonites. And as it, so again, it, that's the, the terror is completely unwarranted. But at the same time, in this ancient world, remember I talked about a couple weeks ago, it's like in a post-apocalyptic movie where you don't have national security anymore. So your security is how strong you are or how strong the person you're allied with is. So when they see this army of Israel moving and, and defeating these powerful kings who have ruled the region for generations, they're terrified. They don't know their motives. Fear. We always fear the unknown. That's a natural response. You know, if you saw a mass of people walking through your neighborhood and you did not know who they were, your initial response might be a little bit of fear. Now, it wouldn't be as much because we have a police force, we have military, we have rule of law, right? But if we don't have that in society, the default reaction to things that are different and overwhelming is often fear. And that's what we see in King Balak here. And so, and, and it's Balak is how you say his name. Um, <clears throat> it says verse, uh, verse 4. So Balak son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the river in his native land. Now there's a bunch of stuff packed in there that we don't know. So let me slow it down for a second. So the king is fearful. He's going to send message to this guy. In Hebrew, his name is Bilaam. I don't know why it got translated as Balaam. I don't know how that happened, but in, you read the word B-I-L-A-M is his name, Bilaam. And he sends to this guy, Bilaam son of Beor, who lives up in Pethor, Pethor, wherever that is. Well, that's in the area where Abraham came from, in the general area of where, back in Genesis, where Abraham was living before he made his way down to Canaan. And it's interesting to note that because when we meet this Bilaam guy, he's going to have knowledge of the same God that Abraham knows. And so the question is, how does he get that knowledge? And there's different conjectures, but he sins to him. Now, this is a known person. Uh, Bilaam was known in the ancient world. There's an inscription. It was found in a place called uh, Der Allah, which is an excavation in this area. And they dug up plaster that had been written on, had writing on it, but it was broken up. So they had to kind of Tetris it together, right? Put it and make it fit and see. And, and what they realized was there, it was an inscription about Balaam, son of Beor. And his abilities as a diviner, as a, as a sorcerer, and as someone who could speak to the gods and get the gods to do something to save people. He, he was a known force in the supernatural ancient Near East world. And in the account, you can read it, you can Google it online and pull it up and actually look at the, I have an image, if I had a projector, I'd show it to you, but he, uh, he, he's a known person. He's a famous hitman in the realm of the divine. You want something fixed, you need the God's helps, you go to Balaam, son of Beor, and he will handle it. So that's what King Balak does. He does exactly what he thinks, because in the ancient world, it was believed that all, there was no such thing as secular battle. All battle between two peoples were battles against their gods. Remember those of you that were here two and a half years ago for the Exodus. The Exodus account was Yahweh overthrowing systematically the gods of Egypt, one by one by one, all ten, through those plagues. Each one targeting a specific god of Egypt's realm and saying, you are powerless over this realm, even in the heart of your own empire. Why? Because our god is the only god. And he is the one who rules all the heavens and the earth. So, same thing this time. 
when there's a battle, the gods of the people, who, the, the people whose gods are stronger, is the people whose army wins. So Balak says, we got to get help. We need to bring this guy down from up near the Euphrates and get him to put a curse because his reputation is known and that was a, 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 it was a means of a special warfare or, or psychological warfare or some, you know, putting a curse on an enemy army would, would, was believed to render them less powerful because their gods would either forsake them or it was a way of enticing their gods to come fight on your side so that you could overcome them. So this is what's going on in the world of the text and why he would do this. So he sends word. Balak sends word to Bilaam and he says, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come put a curse on these people because they're too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. Now raise your hand if that sounds familiar. If you were here four years ago for Genesis 12, you remember this. This is what God said to Abram. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. This was a known thing that a more powerful was supposed to do for the less powerful. And God had said He's going to do it to Abram's descendants. Now, one of the enemies of Abram's descendants is trying to hire someone to come do exactly that against them. So we, the reader, already know this is a bad idea. This plan is not going to work. And with this plan... Balak has written his own death certificate by doing this. Because this is the covenant people of God with God in their midst. So he is come, calling someone to come and attack God's people in covenant with God while he's dwelling in their midst. And so, it says, verse 7, the elders of Moab and Midian, so they got like elders, like high-ranking people in both groups, left taking with them a fee for divination. Or it literally says taking with them divination in hand. So it could have been like money for him to come do it, or it could have been special implements or cultic ritual items that, that, that he would use. Or some, we, we don't know. It's, you look at the commentaries and there's some questions around what exactly they took. But the purpose was taking something to get him to come do this curse. When they came to Bilaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Bilaam said, and I will bring you back the answer. Who gives me? Who? Does it say God? In your Bible? If you have an English Bible, it says the Lord. And is Lord in lower cap letters, lowercase letters? No. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What does that mean? Yahweh. This is the name Yahweh. Now this is scandalous because all of a sudden for the first time since Melchizedek back in Genesis we meet a pagan outside of Israel who has knowledge and relationship with Yahweh that's rare it only happens a few times in scripture and this is one of them so the fact that Bilaam is not at least at this point unfamiliar with Yahweh, the covenant God. God is active outside of the realms of Israel. And this is key to keep in mind because this whole section is going to be about God using something. Who has God spoken through to Israel the entire books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers? Who has He spoken to if He wanted to tell Israel something? Moses and Aaron. 
That's who he's spoken to. Aaron's dead. Moses has rebelled somewhat in the previous incidents where he's striking the rock. So now, God is going to use a pagan sorcerer and a donkey to speak to his people. There's an intentionality in this narrative that God is going to use the unexpected to speak to his people. And not just to communicate with them, but eventually to bless them. And we're going to see how that works out. So, Bilaam said, uh, I'll bring back the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite princes or elders or whatever you want to call them stayed with him. God came to Bilaam and asked, who are these men with you? Remember God coming to Adam in the garden? Why are you hiding? Or God coming to people and asking them, what's going... God, God is entering into... He does this with the people in the Old Testament with key figures. He'll come and He'll ask them a question. He already knows the answer to. But it shows the, the propensity of God to enter into genuine relational dialogue with His people and to actually interact. God doesn't just pronounce from on high voices from the clouds. He actually interacts with people, even people outside of Israel. That's what's so mind-blowing about this section. So, Bilaam said to God, uh, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people has come up out of Egypt that covers the face of the land. Now come out and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Bilaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. So the next morning, Bilaam got up and said to Balak's princes, go back to your own country for the Yahweh's refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite princes returned to Balak and said, Bilaam refused to come with us. Then, Balak sent other elders or princes, more numerous, more distinguished than the first. So the B team didn't work. So he's going to pull out the A team. We know the A-team gets stuff done. So, the A-team, uh, they, came, uh, they came to Bellum and said, this is what Balak son of Zippor says, do not let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. But Bellum answered them, even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything, great or small, to go beyond the command of Yahweh my God. Again, this is crazy. Nobody but Israel has Yahweh as their God. But now we see somebody completely... Bilaam is 400 miles away from where Israel's camped right now. That's a 25-day journey. So each of these trips takes about a month. And then a month back. So it's like four months that Balak has waited while Israel's camped in the land during all this time. You know, we read it like a back and forth, but it's a long time. And, and 400 miles away, up in uh, Padamaram area, near the Euphrates, there's this pagan sorcerer, and Yahweh's his God. That's so baffling. And it should be. But it lets us know, again, a key point, God does stuff outside of what He has revealed explicitly to us. The Bible is sufficient in all things, but not comprehensive in all things. There are things going on that we don't get the stories about in the world. Because God's the God of all the world. 
He didn't just zero in on Israel's family and say, forget the Eskimos, forget the Aborigines, forget the Han Dynasty in China, forget all of these people in sub-Saharan Africa, I'm just going to deal with it. It's not like that. Now that's all we get in the Bible. Why? Because this was their Scriptures. And they are the people through whom He would reach the world. But He's at work outside of those people. Make no mistake about it. God's doing stuff that Israel doesn't even know about. And this is a great story that shows that. So, let's move on. We're not going to finish the whole chapter, obviously, this week, but we're going to get to the fun part. <clears throat> so, now, verse, uh, Bellum says, Now, stay here tonight, as the others did, to these, this A-team, and I will find out what else the Lord may tell me. Or in Hebrew it says, I will, f- I will find what the Lord may add to what He's told me. Is kind of the way the, the phrasing works. So, now they're starting to get a little note of, okay, he has a relationship with God, but this is not a good idea. God has spoken and said, these people are blessed. Do not curse them. So now, he sent the B team away. Good job, Billam. You would have gone down in history as a prophet of God. Another people come. A little more money. A little more prestige. And he says, well, let's wait and see if God will say something else you see the greed or hints of that temptation towards greed already sprouting up so that by the time of the new testament when peter mentions billam he's going to say that one who went after greedy gain and and billam's going to be synonymous with those who lead people astray or destroy people spiritually because of uh, appealing to their greed and their senses of idolatry because that's what's going to happen in the end he's a tragic figure But right now he says, well, let's see what else the Lord will tell me. That night, verse 20, God came to Bilaam. And he said, now this is where if you read NIV, and I I don't do this a lot. I mean, there's different ways to translate. But this is where the NIV made a specific decision. And I don't think it's right. Um, The NIV says, that night God came to Bilaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. So it's like God saying, well, they came all this way, go with them. But that word that's translated since, it's, it's, it's a it's small Hebrew word. Almost every other time in cases like this, it's translated as if. And if. And, not, and the verb, they have come, is just a simple if they come. So the NIV has made an interpretive decision that's making this like a consecutive uh, participle, or not participle, particle, where they're, they're saying, God's saying, since they came, go with them. But the Hebrew text itself, it's much more likely, again, check all the commentaries for this, don't take my word for it, but it's much more likely that it says, if they come, like in the morning, if they come back, then you go with them. So God's kind of giving a little bit of a test here. And then it says, but do only what I tell you. Verse 21, Bilaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. They didn't come to him. He got up. He sat on his donkey. He went with them. God said, if they come, go with them. And they didn't come. He went ahead. So again, we're seeing these hints of his greed uh, peeking through. And that explains the next verse, which doesn't make any sense if the NIV translation is correct. Because the next verse says, but God was very angry when he went and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. If God said, since these men have come, go with them. And then the next two verses, God was angry when He went. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, God doesn't have to make sense. He does not owe us 
to make sense all the time, but it's much more likely, and it makes more sense of this passage, that God's giving Bilaam a little bit to tease out, to draw out his inner motive of, of a desire to go curse these people, who he already has been told they're blessed, don't curse them. So it's like God has already given a clear message, and we want to believe God, but we also want some other stuff that contradicts that message. So let's f- see if we can figure a way that God will maybe give us something, some way around what He's already told us. I mean, this is, a, this is a phenomenon that we do all the time. This is self-rationalization, self-justification. God said, you will not commit adultery. But she gets me in a way that my wife doesn't. And my wife is just so unloving and discouraging, but this woman, she's my soulmate. Did God really say don't commit adultery? Maybe God will make an exception in my case because we really love each other. That's the voice of Balaam. That's the voice of the serpent. That's that self-justification. I know that God says care for the poor and the alien and the immigrant. But I really don't want to do that because that's going to hurt my bottom line. That's going to dip into my checking account. That's going to make me... If I do that, I'm not going to be able to afford the boat on Lake Norman. And so... Okay, so God said that, but in my case, there's something else that He wants. Self-justification, that self-rationalization. And so we're seeing, I, I, I'm suggesting to you that that's what we're seeing in Bilaam's attitude here. And I think the rest of the story bears that out. That he does show his true colors later. And so what starts out as a genuine prophet of God, prophet of Yahweh, ends as a tragic, uh, fallen, pagan voice of Satan. Which is how he's pretty much described when he's mentioned everywhere else in the Bible. And we'll see that in the very next section. There's an interesting point. I'll end with this because we're not going to get to the main actor in this section, which is his donkey. Um, it says, Bilaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, went with the princes of Moab. But God was very, or God became very angry as he went. Literally, it says, but God was angry as he was going. So other people have suggested, well, God's not angry that he went, but while he was going, something happened within his heart or on the journey or something. God became angry. Now, that in and of itself, again, is interesting because this brings up other, brings to mind other figures who we've already met. When Moses was given the commission, go, and free my people, bring them out of Egypt, on the way to meet Aaron, that, remember that passage in Exodus? But the Lord met him along the way and sought to put him to death. And Zipporah had to do the quick slice and dice foreskin uh, you know, circumcision, and, and it was a bloody little ritual. And then it was just that weird, weird passage in Exodus chapter 4. You can go read it yourself later. But it's one of those where it's like, wait, God, you just told me to go, but then along the way you've opposed me. What's going on? And later, you know, God did it with Jacob too. He told Jacob, go back to your land. But then along the way at, the, at uh, Exodus, or Genesis 32, God shows up and what does He do? He struggles and wrestles with Jacob all night and He leaves him disfigured with a limp. So again, these heroes of the faith, these patriarchs are told to do something, but then there is this reminder to them along the way of doing what they're supposed to do. Hey, remember who you're representing. Remember who runs the show. 
And God shows up and, and makes Himself known in, in a pretty scary way. And it's happened twice to the patriarchs. It'll happen to Joshua when he encounters this same angel of the Lord standing there with a sword. But right here, it's so interesting because it happens to this pagan sorcerer from the, near the Euphrates. So he goes, the Lord becomes angry with him, and literally in Hebrew, that word became very angry. Literally says, and the Lord became hot of nose. <laughs> That's how you say angry, no, hot of nose. Your nose flares up. Um, he became very angry, <clears throat> and the angel of the Lord, now we've met the angel of the Lord all through the Torah so far. The, remember how you translate it? It's an appositional genitive. The angel who is the Lord. It's like saying the land of Egypt. Not the land that belongs to Egypt, the land that is Egypt. That's what this is. This is God as an angel appearing. And that explains why this angel speaks with the voice of God. And people speak to the angel of the Lord as if they're speaking to God. So God shows up, standing there, stood in the road to oppose Him. That verb, to oppose, literally, to satan Him. To be an adversary to Him. It's the word Satan. It's, that is the word, Satan. God showed up to Satan him. <laughs> what does that mean? Is God Satan? No. What it means is that word Satan, it's not a proper name, it's a title. It means the opposer, the accuser, the adversary. God is doing that to Balaam in this section. He is showing up to oppose him. And the capital S Satan is the one who universally does that to God's people. Opposes them. Accuses them. Stands to condemn them. So it's just really interesting that it's like the word Satan here is used to describe the thing that God Himself is doing. It's just one of those things that people are like, well, it's like a snake in the Bible can be a symbol of the serpent in the garden or Jesus being lifted up on the pole. It's like, how can the same thing mean two completely opposite things? Well, that's just how the language works. But the point is, God shows up, stands in the road. Balaam was riding his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. We're going to stop right there. One, because we're out of time. And two, because... Billum's going to realize something in the next session. And it's going to be extremely ironic because what is he being called to do? He's called for his skill at seeing the divine and engaging with the divine. And now he's going to have a face-to-face -face encounter with the divine and he doesn't even know it. Who does know it? His female donkey that he's riding on. So it's a very ironic putting in place of this uh, guy, Billum. But... We're out of time. So you guys have a great week. Back to work. Enjoy the rest of your day. And come back next week. Let's keep filling this place up. We'll see you then.